Well, good evening. If you've enjoyed the service so far, so far uh, I know I certainly have. Um, I know I am in a little bit of a tough spot because I am the last major event before Ice Cream Social. Someone asked me earlier, Michael, are you nervous for preaching tonight? The preaching part, I think I'll do, a, I don't know, I think I can handle that. What I'm nervous about is the time because I know that everyone's going to start checking their clocks and uh, wanting that ice cream. So I trust that you'll be encouraged from the preaching of God's word. Um, about two weeks ago, a little bit over two weeks ago, on a Saturday morning, my dad came up to me. Uh, he didn't know he was going to be part of the, sermon, uh, <laughs> the illustration. My dad came up to me, and he woke me up from my morning slumber, and he said, Michael, are you going to the church work day? And I had forgotten all about the church work day. And immediately in my mind, a million excuses kind of flashed into my head about good reasons why I didn't need to go, right? I'm tired. I have a busy day. I had to prepare for Sunday school uh, the day later. Um, I, already, I work at the church five days a week. Can I get a day off? You know, <laughs> all these kind of things were flashing through my head. But if I'm being perfectly honest with myself, the real reason why I didn't want to go to the church work day was, in that moment, I cared a little bit more about me than I did the needs of the church, didn't I? I prioritized my own personal comfort more than service to God. This evening, I'd like to share with you a quick challenge from Haggai chapter 1. If you have your Bibles or your phones, feel free to turn there. Haggai chapter 1, but we're not going to start there because the book of Haggai, much like many other of the prophetic books in the Bible, immediately just plops you into the middle of the story without any explanation. And the book will not make much sense to you if you don't understand the historical context of Israel within which this book is embedded. So I'm actually going to begin by just giving a quick recap of the first four chapters of the book of Ezra. Ezra sets up the story for the events of Haggai quite well. For sake of time, we're not going to turn to Ezra, but I do want to highlight a few key points that will help us in setting the stage for Haggai. So for the past 70 years, Judah, I'm going to use the terms Judah and Israel pretty much synonymously in this sermon simply because the nation of Israel had been destroyed earlier. But Judah had spent 70 years in exile under Babylonian captivity, right? You will recall that Israel had a special relationship with God under the Mosaic Covenant, and God had told them, uh, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you obey my commandments, I'm going to bless you. But if you disobey my commandments, I'm going to curse you. I'm going to punish you, in other words. One of those punishments outlined in Deuteronomy 28 was captivity. And sure enough, Israel slash Judah disobeyed, and so they were sent to captivity. For 70 years, they were in the exile of Babylon. But Ezra chapter 1 picks up just after that, when after 70 years, Babylon, the nation, was conquered by Persia. And Ezra chapter 1 opens with a new Persian king on the scene, a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus begins chapter 1 by issuing a decree for all of the Jews to return to their home country, to return to Israel, specifically to return to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the temple of God that was destroyed when the Babylonians, when the Babylonians invaded them. Importantly, I want to emphasize that this was not merely a commandment by Cyrus. This was a commandment from God. Uh, verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1 uh, says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Right? So this was God's commandment. Ezra chapter 1. The command is given to rebuild the temple. Ezra chapter 2. The Jews go. 
Ezra chapter 3, they start reconstruction. And at first, things are going very, very well. The Bible records how they have, um, they, they very quickly build the foundation of the temple. But then we come to Ezra chapter 4. And in chapter 4, what we find is that the Jews are immediately faced with opposition, right? The enemies of God decide to do everything they can to try to stop this temple from being rebuilt. They use deception, discouragement, threats, in some cases force. They write libelous letters against Israel. They're trying to get them to stop building the house of God. And finally, due to their opposition, uh, due to the opposition that Israel was facing, they gave up. They ceased working on the temple altogether. And they didn't touch it again for another 16 years. On a quick side note, isn't it funny how we are often very happy to serve God when we don't face any problems, right? When it's easy for us, we're more than willing to serve God. I'm very happy to talk to someone and tell them about Jesus if he seems receptive and open to the word, for instance. But once you start getting flack for what you're doing, once you start receiving persecution, once you start getting belittled and made fun of, well, then it becomes much harder to obey, doesn't it? Well, this was exactly the case for Israel. When they got the A-OK from Cyrus, they were more than happy to go and to start building the temple again. But once they faced opposition, they stopped serving God. As Christians, this ought not be the case for us. We ought to prioritize service to God over our own personal comfort. And it's within this context that Haggai opens his book. So, like I said, Haggai happens 16 years after the events of Ezra chapter 4. And within that time, nothing has been accomplished on the temple. The Jews have been living in Jerusalem for well over a decade at this point, yet the temple has remained half-finished, or actually less than half-finished. And to make matters worse, there's a serious drought going on in uh, Jerusalem at this time. Crops aren't growing, cattle is going hungry, inflation is rising. It's a bad situation to be in. And it's within this context that Haggai arrives on the scene and he delivers a powerful sermon of revival to a spiritually callous people. Um, Let's begin by reading our text. We're going to be reading Haggai chapter 1, and then I want to give you a a few observations from the chapter. Um, Haggai chapter 1. Let me shift my Bible over just a hair so the mic picks me up. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. 
I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of God, on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius to King. This evening, I want to take the remainder of our short time to quickly highlight five points from this narrative. Technically, I have four points and then a little epilogue, but these points are going to draw our overall attention to the main theme of Haggai chapter one. First, I want you to notice the reason for the Jews' suffering. As I mentioned, the Jews were facing very serious problems at this time. Their biggest problem was the drought, right? It was scourging throughout Jerusalem. And it, but this drought naturally led to other problems like inflation that's described um, in verse 6 and other things. Verse 6 and verses 9 through 11 describe the severity of the crisis in Jerusalem. The Jews were tremendously suffering. No matter how much work they did, their work it seemed like was futile, right? Their crops wouldn't grow, their food wouldn't be enough to fill their bellies, their clothes would not keep them warm. And Let me read for you verse 9, as it highlights this point well. You look for much, but it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away, declares the Lord of hosts. So they spend all day gathering food, but they don't collect anything, and that little that they do collect seems to be blown away, right? Haggai 1, verse 11, let me read that for you as well. Verse 11 says, "Um, I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, and it goes on pretty much the drought has been devastating for all of Jerusalem, right? It was absolutely devastating. But I want you to catch the reason for the Jews' suffering. It was not bad luck. It was not a mere accident, or it was not a cosmic coincidence, right? Rather, Haggai chapter 1 lists two main reasons for the Jews' suffering. The first reason was the Jews' disobedience. The Jews had prioritized their own personal comfort over service to God. Verse 4 records how they built their own luxurious houses for themselves instead of working on God's house, the temple, which again was the whole reason they came to Jerusalem in the first place. Uh, In verse 4, Haggai rhetorically asks the question, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies desolate? The Jews had time to build their own houses, but when it came to building God's house, they didn't have time for that. The term paneled houses in verse 4 is particularly interesting. Um, It might refer to paneling, like wooden paneling set up on the walls, or it may refer to um, finished ceilings, finished roofing. Um, The Hebrew allows for both interpretations. But the main emphasis, the main point either way, is that these were nice, luxurious, extravagant things, right? In fact, the word that we have translated as paneled in verse 4 is most often used in the Old Testament within the context of Solomon's temple. So that should give you an idea for how nice these, these things really were, right? Clearly, it was very luxurious. So we mentioned Deuteronomy 28 earlier, 
uh, a chapter of blessings for obedience and cursings and punishments for disobedience. Well, interestingly enough, one of the punishments for disobedience was drought. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 18 and, 20, and verse 24, God declares that he will punish with drought for disobedience to his word. And sure enough, God's word remains true. Um, the, the Israelites fail to build the temple as they're commanded, and the drought comes. So, in addition to the prioritization of their personal comfort over service to God, I also want you to notice the excuses that they invent in verse 2. Um, notice verse 2. Let me read it for you again. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. See, they're willing to serve God eventually, but not immediately. They say, the time isn't right to serve God. And how often do we use the excuse of time to justify our disobedience? We'll serve God eventually, but just not, just right when it fits within our schedule, right? I would read my Bible, but I just don't have enough time in my day. Or, I know I should probably give to the church, but it's just not a good time in my life right now, right? I just need to fix some things of my own first. And friend, I guarantee you, God will give you the time that you need to serve him. So the Jews were suffering because of their own disobedience. Yet I want to emphasize the other side of that same coin, which is it wasn't merely the Jews' disobedience, it was actually God's discipline. They're, they're one and the same, but the emphasis is different. Notice that God is ultimately the source of Israel's suffering. He claims divine ownership for the current struggles that they face. Let's reread verse 9. God says, when you bring food home, I blow it away. Skip down to verse 11. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, and so on. Again, God is punishing his people according to the Mosaic covenant. Yet, God makes it clear in verse 10 that he is punishing them because of their sin. Verse 10 says, Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. So, while God was the source of their suffering, he was not ultimately the cause. Their sin brought about their suffering. Now, I need to be careful with my application here, because we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. Um, as New Testament believers, we are not blessed for our obedience and cursed for our disobedience in the same way that Israel was. And I think it would be a wrong application to suggest that every time we suffer, that's the result of personal, individual sin, right? In fact, the book of Job illustrates this point well, very well. Uh, all of Job's friends are telling him, hey, Job, you must have done something wrong, right? Because clearly you're suffering like crazy. And, and Job didn't do anything wrong in that case. So that would be a wrong application. But I, I will emphasize that sometimes when we suffer, not all the time, but sometimes when we suffer, it actually is our own doing. It is because of sin. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Sometimes God is punishing us so that we can learn from our sinful behavior. So therefore, when we face trials, it's, it's good to at least ask the question, is God punishing me because of some sin in my life? And that's the main emphasis of my second point. First, we talked about the reason for suffering. Now I want to quickly look at the rebuke from God. Um, Verses 5 through 7, God echoes the phrase to consider your ways. Um, in fact, in the original Hebrew, verses 5 and verse 7 are identical with the exception of one word. God's not repeating these verses for, he's not being redundant, he's repeating these for emphasis. So, the phrase consider your ways is what we might call the rally cry of the book of Haggai. 
It's a call to action. Since the phrase is practically used twice in a row, I figured it'd be a good idea for me to actually really study this deeply. So I looked, I looked into some commentaries to try to figure out, is there some deeper meaning to consider your ways? As it turns out, there's really not. It, it kind of means what it says, right? We're suppo- it could literally be translated this way. Set your heart upon your ways. Or in modern English, we might say it this way. Examine your heart. Think about what you've done. God's saying, okay, Jews, you see that you've been suffering a lot because of the drought. Consider your ways. He says, okay, Jews, you're living luxurious lifestyles in these paneled houses while my house is half rubble. Consider your ways. God's desire was for the Jews to look at what they were doing and reconsider their priorities. See, they had imbalanced priorities. They put their own personal comfort over their service to God, and God rebukes them for it. Third, I want to emphasize the requirement of obedience. After identifying the cause of the Jews' suffering and then rebuking them for their spiritual apathy, God reiterated his command to obey and to rebuild uh, the temple. Remember, this is a command that was given over 15 years ago under King Cyrus. Um, It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't just a preference. This was a command that that God ordained. Let's reread verse 8 very quickly. Uh, Verse 8, God says, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. There's a lot that could be said here, but for sake of time, let me just highlight one point. The requirement to go up into the, into the mountains and bring wood is particularly significant. Um, as I mentioned, this was a requirement that was given all the, way bo- all the way back in the book of Ezra. And you'll recall in Ezra chapter 3, they were getting significant progress done on the reconstruction of the temple. Particularly, I want to highlight Ezra 3, 7. Let me turn to it very, very quickly and read that for you. Ezra 3, uh, verse 7. Then they, the Jews, gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So notice, this is significant. Apparently, the Jews had already purchased cedar wood from Lebanon back in Ezra chapter 3. And yet here in Haggai chapter 1, God is commanding his people to go get wood. So the natural question that we should ask is, what happened to the wood, right? The Bible doesn't explicitly say, but it seems pretty clear from the context. It's reasonable to assume that the Jews used the wood that should have been used on God's house, and they used it for their paneled houses in verse 4. You ever wonder where they got the paneling from? So not only did they fail God, but they used God's resources um, at their own luxury, right, to satisfy their own personal comfort instead. And how often do we take resources that God has given us and use it to satisfy our own personal comfort? I'm not merely talking about financial resources, though that's certainly included, but God has also given us each talents and abilities and gifts with which we can serve him, right? But because we value our own comfort, We use it for our own purposes, right? For instance, maybe God's given you an outgoing personality where you're just great at talking to people and making relationships. And instead of using this to actually encourage believers and to evangelize the lost, you use this to become the life of the party, right? You take God's resources and you convert it selfishly to your own priorities. So verse 8, God reissues the requirement of obedience. Finally, I want to look at... um, verses 12 through 15, which emphasize one final point. 
the response of the people. So how did the people respond to the sermon that Haggai preached? Well, if Old Testament history is any indicator, we would assume that probably they would reject the prophet of God, probably persecute him, and keep on sinning. But Haggai, 12, or Haggai 1, verses 12 through 15, is quite interesting in that it records a very different story, as we read. We see what can only be described as one of the greatest revivals ever recorded in the history of Scripture. Right? Let me read for you some of Haggai 1.12. It says, All the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. The Jews had a complete and an immediate change of heart that could only be, um, it reminds us, it's reminiscent of the, the complete 180 that the Ninevites do after hearing the preaching of Jonah, right? It's just an immediate response to God's preaching. It's, it's incredible, actually. The revival amongst the Jews is an amazing display of God's power and his grace. But before we conclude this evening, I want to emphasize three characteristics of the revival that will help us in understanding our service to God. So first, I I want to emphasize the revival was restorative. I I struggled when I was writing my outline what word choice to use. Um, By restorative, I simply mean it was reconciliatory, right? So you have Israel on the one hand, and you have God, and because of Israel's sin and disobedience, that relationship has been strained, not severed. They're still God's people, but it has been strained by sin. And because of Israel's obedience to God and their service to him, that relationship is restored. Notice in verse 13, after Israel repents and obeys, God once again declares to his people, I am with you, right? Also, notice the language that's used, the intimate personal language that's used in these verses, and contrast that with with uh, the, ver- the language used in verse 2. Uh, let's go back to verse 2 just for a second, because this is good. Um, verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. You catch that? Normally, when God's talking about the children of Israel, he talks about my people. But in verse 2, because of the strained relationship of, caused by sin, he, it, it's like he almost doesn't even accept them as his own, right? He says, This people... It's, it's distant. It's a distant relationship. But then let's look at verses 12 and 14, um, skipping down to halfway through verse 12. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. You catch that? And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent them. Verse 14, halfway down. And to the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So, we have a relationship that's strained by sin, but it's, um, it's um, reconciled, it's restored through obedience. Um, second, I want to emphasize that this revival was initiated by God. Notice verse 14 very closely. So it says, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, uh, the spirit of Joshua, and the spirit of all the people. Now, who is doing the ultimate action in verse 14? Well, sure, it's the people who are um, building the temple, but notice that God was the one that stirred their hearts, right? It is God who produces true revival in our lives. It reminds me of what Brother DePalmo is saying, right? It is, it is, we can't take credit for these things. It's God who, does, who uses us. And we might show the results of the change, but it's ultimately God who produces the change. And it is always an act of God when man is spiritually moved to obey him. 
So finally, I want to give you one final point about the revival, and that's that the revival was immediate. Notice um, verse 15 actually gives us the exact date to the very day when this event occurred, which is pretty cool. It makes us, you know, for those who want to do a deep study, it's very helpful, right? So we can compare this date when they started rebuilding the temple to the date listed in Haggai 1.1 when they heard the sermon for the first time. And you see, when you do the math, it took them just 23 days to start building the temple again. And then you do more math and you say, well, they had to go back to the mountains, get the wood. And and it seems like, pretty clearly from the context, they respond to the message of God quite as quickly as they could. Notice the change of heart from verse 2 to the end of the chapter. In verse 2, they say the timing isn't right. Oh, it's not the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. But then in the end of the chapter, they go immediately when they hear uh, Haggai's sermon. Um, They work on God's schedule, not theirs. So we talked about the reason for suffering, the rebuke from God, the requirement of obedience, and the response of the people. I want to conclude quickly with an epilogue, which is the result of obedient service. Um, We can actually cross-reference the book of Haggai with with Ezra here, Ezra chapter 6. And what we find is it took them, from the time they heard this sermon and they started rebuilding the temple, it took them exactly four and a half years to complete the temple. That's actually remarkable. That's actually a faster pace than it took to rebuild Solomon's temple back in the day. Um, and, and we find that you can accomplish so much if you are willing to put, your, your own, put aside your own personal comfort and to prioritize service to God. God blesses obedient service to him. We don't always see immediately the results of our service, but nonetheless, God does use it to uh, give himself glory and to accomplish his purposes. So, let me conclude with this. How are we doing, right? Do we prioritize personal comfort over service to God? I hope not. Maybe you're like me, um, who would rather sleep in on a Saturday morning than, than go to a church work day. But you use your own scenario, but I'm sure we've all done similar things. If you're putting your own comfort over service to God, I would encourage you and challenge you with the words of Haggai. Consider your ways. Examine your heart. Think about what you're doing. And may God move all of us to repent, to obey, and to prioritize service to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the great privilege it was to preach your word. I pray that you would um, use your word to convict not only um, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but to convict me, as this is a challenge we all need to hear, Lord. Uh, May we learn from the lessons of Israel um, to respond appropriately to your word when you give us a commandment. We want to give you all glory that comes as a result of it, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.